superstars, third options, key bench players. It seems like I've talked about them all. But there are two players, regular rotation players, that are oftentimes scapegoated by Clipper fans. And we're going to be talking about them on today's Locked On Clippers. You are Locked On Clippers, your daily Los Angeles Clippers podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, sir. You are locking in with the clips here on Locked On Clippers. Thank you for making Locked On Clippers the first listen of your day. I am your host, 18 years a Clipper fan, Darian Vaziri. Also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and have my own YouTube channel called Dime Dropper Pod for all Clipper content, post games, and NBA history. So today's episode, I've done If you've noticed, each of the last couple of episodes, I've kind of gone through the Clipper roster and talked about specific players, what my projected stat lines for them are, and kind of just given my expectations for what we should expect as fans and as as Clipper fans and NBA fans for those players this season. Started out with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, the guys, they're going to have to be fantastic superstar level to lead the Clippers to their first ever championship. And then I talked about who could be the potential third options, Norman Powell, Reggie Jackson. And then I even talked about two way kind of third best players, Nico Batum, Robert Covington. And then the last episode I talked about Terrence Mann, Amir Coffey and Luke Kennard. Now you'll notice there are a couple of players I didn't mention. I talked about John Wall, but I'm also going to talk about John Wall a little more in depth in this episode towards the end, talking about the recent video released of the Rico Hines runs at UCLA, Paul George and John Wall played at. I mentioned them a couple episodes before, but the footage was released, and I got some things to say about that, because if you're a Clipper fan, John Wall and that footage looked electric. And mind you, he was playing against other NBA players. A lot of, basically the entire Toronto Raptors team was there, but... We're going to be talking about, or I'm going to be talking about, two guys who have been very regular players in the Clippers rotation the last, well, in Zubats' case, for three and a half seasons, and in Marcus Morris Sr.'s case, two and a half seasons. And these two guys are very important because Clipper fans, I feel like, often scapegoat these two players, and are very quick to jump on their necks when they play poorly. So I'm going to first talk about Marcus Morris Sr. Now, Mook, or Mook, as he likes to be called, has been a very good player for the Clippers since he's arrived. Now, the Clippers went out and got him in the 2019-20 season. When the Lakers got Markeith Morris... The Clippers went and got Marcus Morris, and it just seemed like the Clippers were looking to just keep strengthening their roster in 2019-20 because there was this there was this huge pressure of, oh, the Lakers are doing this, the Lakers are playing so well, the Battle of L.A., that whole offseason, that whole season, but starting in the offseason with the move of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and then Anthony Davis right before that to the Lakers, it was all about Battle of L.A., Lakers and Clippers on a collision course to meet in the conference finals, and it felt like the Clippers were making moves 
just to combat the Lakers, just in, in anticipation almost of playing the Lakers. And I think that arrogant strategy of kind of neglecting everyone else came back to bite them. And when you saw Ty Lue coach his first full season in the 2020-2021 season, Marcus Morris Sr. started off on the bench for Nico Batum and was a really solid member of the bench. And then you saw him start a little bit more as the season went on. He started 29 games out of 57. He missed 15 that season, but he scored more points or averaged more points for the Clippers in that first full season than he did in the in the 2020 season when he was traded. All right, I got the number now. 19 games, and he started all of them. He was traded for Mo Harkless. He started all of them alongside Kawhi, Paul George, Ivica Zubats, and Patrick Beverly. And he averaged 10 points and only shot 42.5%. I remember you could see the rhythm was kind of getting to him, like not being able to shoot as much as he had in New York. And in New York, that was his highest scoring season of his career that he was having at the time. 19.6 points a game in 43 games. All of them he started in New York in the first half of that 2019-20 season. Comes to the Clippers for the second half of the season, and obviously it gets cut short due to COVID. But in the playoffs that year, he actually increased his averages in the bubble to 12 points a game. And shot 50% from the field, 50.5 to be exact, and 47.5 from three. But if you'll remember, it was Marcus Morris Sr. in game five of the bubble who provoked Paul Millsap and kind of ignited what ended up being the Denver Nuggets' first of three double-digit comebacks in that bubble to come back from that 3-1 deficit. And then Marcus Morris Sr. missed several open threes in that game seven, which I was very angry about at the time. But in 2021, he responded really well. It was his first season where he got to ingratiate himself within the team in the offseason. He got to get more comfortable. And even though he didn't start in the beginning of the season, Nico Batum did. He was still really good. He didn't really complain. And then he started 29 games. He averaged 13.4 points per game, which was obviously more than the 10 points per game he averaged in the 19 games with the Clippers in the previous season when he first arrived. And his efficiency just went up completely. He was so unbelievably efficient in 2021 in the when I say 2021 I mean the 2020 2021 season I just feel like it's redundant to keep saying the whole year like that but he shot 10 shots a game he made 47 percent of those shots and shot the exact same percentage from three 47 percent so his true shooting percentage which is it takes into account that threes are harder and also includes some free throws as well 61 percent true shooting which is really solid and he was just amazing. I mean, 47% from three, and he was just lights out. I don't have the numbers on me. From the corners, though, just lights out, especially the left corner. He was just automatic. And the thing about Marcus Morris Sr. is he's not just a catch-and-shoot open shot maker. He's a contested shot maker. He can shoot a three with a guy right in his grill. Like, he'll get the ball, and the guys had a per- the defenders made a perfect closeout, literally giving him no breathing room, and he can just rise over the top and hit. He has that ability to sometimes make the contest look like it's not even there. But then again, he lives off those shots, so sometimes they just don't fall. So it gives him these on nights and off nights, and it's kind of like unpredictable because he doesn't get to the rim. That's his weakness. He doesn't have many much athleticism anymore. He has no burst. He's not a very good finisher on the basket at all. So that's where his scoring weakness comes in. From mid-range and three, he's fantastic. He's awesome. But it's that first level and the three that prevents him from being a three-level scorer. He's a two-level scorer, really. And it's that first level he doesn't really have. Now, he was awesome in the 2021 season. I thought he was great. 
He's, he was so efficient. The only thing we were hoping for was that he would carry that form into the playoffs, and he did dip. He only averaged 12 points in the playoffs. He shot 43% and 37.5 from three, which is not bad, but compared to what he shot in the regular season, it was a, it was a little bit of a letdown. That being said, it was like the first two games against the Mavericks where the Clippers both lost them where he wasn't very good. He bounced back well in Dallas, and then in Game 7, he was huge, and he made that left corner three to seal the deal. If you guys are familiar with my vlogs, because I, I went to every playoff. I go to every playoff game when the Clippers are in the playoffs because I'm just such a big fan. And I was, I was obviously at that Game 7, which I mentioned in a couple episodes ago. But if you watch my vlog on that, it was just... That was a great moment where Marcus Morris Sr. hit that three. And then, even though he struggled in those first two games in Utah, if my memory serves me correctly, Game 5 against the Jazz in Utah, which is one of the most famous games in Clipper history. Everybody remembers Paul George's 38 points and how incredible he played. But Marcus Morris Sr., and I really want to mention this and emphasize it, was so great in that game without the first game, which Kawhi didn't play after the partially torn ACL or the ACL tear. In Game 5 against the Utah Jazz, Marcus Morris Sr. had 25 points on 10 of 16 shooting and 3 for 4 from deep. It was just an incredible performance. One of the best he's had for the Clippers and in the time we needed it most. And then against the Suns, he was starting to get banged up as the series went on and you could really see his production dip and he was injured. He definitely wasn't healthy and that was, uh, I mentioned it a couple episodes ago, but that's kind of a what if we forget as Clipper fans. If Marcus Morris Sr. had been healthy against the Suns, could we have beaten them or could the Clippers have beaten them? Even without Kawhi. Now, it's kind of a stretch, but it's food for thought. That being said, Marcus Morris Sr. looked like he was carrying that injury into the beginning of last season because he was not ready to go. And we were relying on him fairly heavily without Kawhi to score the ball, and he just didn't look ready to go in the beginning of the season. That was part of the reason why the Clippers kind of got off to a slightly slow start before putting on a little bit of a winning streak. It was Marcus Moore Sr. and Nico Batum, it was like they couldn't stay on the floor together for the beginning of the season. But then he started to get going, and he actually ended up having his best statistical season with the Clippers and his second highest scoring season of his entire career after that 2020 season where he was playing for the Knicks on a bad team. He averaged 15 points a game with the Clippers last season on a winning team. 15.4 to be exact. His efficiency did drop to 43%, but he still shot 37% from three. And you, know, it's the same thing with Reggie Jackson. You know his efficiency. You knew his efficiency was going to drop because the Clippers didn't have Kawhi. And obviously for 51 games, no Paul George as well. So Marcus Morris Sr. and Reggie Jackson were our two best scorers. And oftentimes Marcus Morris Sr. was our best scorer. But the reason why Marcus Morris Sr. may get moved, or in my opinion should get moved, is because... What I mentioned before, if his shot's not falling, how else is he contributing? Offensively, he doesn't really shot create. He doesn't get to the basket and draw secondary defenders. He'll, he'll draw secondary defenders when they're worried about his post-ups and mid-ranges, and I promise you, you won't be seeing that much of that with Kawhi and Paul George on the floor. When, he, when there's no Paul George or Kawhi, yes, sometimes you'll see him get doubled in the mid-post and, and those kind of situations, but you're not going to see that as, as much this season if he's still on the roster, which right now he is, so let's treat him like he is on the roster. On the defensive side of things, he wasn't bad when he first came to the Clippers. I honestly don't think he's horrendous, but some people might disagree with me. He's not great, though. He's slowed down laterally, laterally completely. He's just slowed down in terms of his burst. So get taking guys off the dribble, which 
I got to go back and watch the tape, but I don't remember him ever really taking guys off the dribble like that because his skill level offensively in terms of scoring has really gone up in the last three or so years. In Detroit, in like 2016, he was good. In Boston, 2017, he was good. But it wasn't until like that 2019 season with Boston and then going into 2020 with the Knicks where he really stepped up his shot making. And then we've gotten, I think, the prime version of him, really. But in terms of his lateral movement, he's not as good as he was with Boston. He gets blown by very easily, and he's also a very lazy defender at times. He doesn't, Even though he's a 6'8", and oftentimes can be the second biggest guy on the court for the Clippers, he doesn't offer any rim resistance at all. He rarely gets off the ground, doesn't take any charges, and doesn't get rebounds. And when he's the second tallest guy on the floor and he has games with one rebound, zero rebounds, that is problematic. And that is exactly why he, I think he should get moved because... It's just when you're not hitting, if you, if you can only be effective by hitting shots, it's very hard on championship contending teams to stay on the court, point blank period. And I think it's going to be hard for Marcus Morris Sr. to stay on the court this season. But if Ty Lue can manage it well and you know police him if he's doing a little too much or if he's just not playing well and just limit his minutes and make him come off the bench, then I'm fine with it because I like Marcus Morris Sr. Again, I root for him. But I just don't want Ty Lue forcing Senior out there to score, taking away from guys that do different things like Terrence Mann or Luke Kennard, who I've talked about previously. And I just don't want them to get sacrificed, especially because they have upside and are continuing to develop. Marcus Moore Sr. is the finished article. Do I think Clipper fans can be a little harsh on Marcus Moore Sr. sometimes? Absolutely. But do you know who I think they can be harsher on that should not be traded? Ivica Zubas. And we're going to be coming, we're going to be go, going in depth on his strengths and weaknesses, coming up next. Are you one of those people who thinks it's okay to drive stoned? What's the worst that can happen? You end up driving below the speed limit? It's no big deal, right? Wrong. The truth is your reaction time slowed way down when you're high. You not only put yourself in danger, but everyone around you. Talk about a buzzkill. Stop kidding yourself. It's not okay to drive high. If you've been using marijuana in any form, do not get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different. Drive high, get a DUI. Stay safe out there. All right, scapegoat city. Time to get into the one who I really think is a scapegoat. I actually think Marcus Morris Sr., a lot of times the criticism is justified. But if it's his Zubots, let's get right into it. I have gone out on a limb many times and said that if it's his Zubots, is capable of being the starting center on a championship team for the Clippers. And I still stand by that. And I think Clipper fans really need to get behind Zoo. So obviously, the Clippers got Zoo in the amazing trade, Mike Muscala, uh, right around the deadline in 2018-19. And Zubats was such a big upgrade over March and Gortat. You could instantly tell he was more agile, quicker. His rim protection was better. And he was just had good touch around the rim, could dunk uh, with authority. was great. Younger, more lively, and just more rim protection. 2019-20, I think Zoo had a really good season. I think he had to start to develop really good chemistry with Kawhi in that pick and roll. And the problem was, though, we had Montrez Harrell. Or the Clippers had Montrez Harrell. And that would really limit Zoo's minutes because he was a, such a great offensive player and won sixth man of the year that year. 
But Zhu, in 2019-20, he played every single game, started in 70 of them, but he only averaged 18 minutes a night and averaged eight points and seven and a half rebounds. So again, if he gets, I've said this on numerous occasions, but if he gets 30 minutes, he's getting a double-double with ease. If he gets 25 minutes that season, I think he's averaging a double-double. He was very good, protected the rim well, and in the playoffs, he was great, or not, I wouldn't say great, but he was very good against Nikola Jokic and dominated some games against the Dallas Mavericks, but there was the whole, you know, he would get in foul trouble and we didn't have, or the Clippers didn't have any backup for him against Jokic, and that was the whole Montrez being left out on Jokic thing that Glenn Rivers was fairly scrutinized for, and... Yeah, it was tough. It was tough not having a true backup rim-protecting big for Zoo. That's why the Clippers went out and got Serge Ibaka before the 2020-2021 season. And that actually took Zoo to the bench. And I remember saying that before that season, he was going to win most improved player. But then with the addition of Serge Ibaka, that pushed Zubats to the bench. And he really wasn't the same Zubats to me consistently when he came off the bench. But then he started as, the, as Serge had the whole back injury. He started 33 games. And he played every single game that season again. So both seasons... 2019-20 and 2020-2021, Zubats played every single game, and he actually increased his stats in that season. He averaged nine points and seven rebounds, or you know, just increased his scoring, I should say. Nine points, seven rebounds, and he shot 65%, but only played 22 minutes a game. So again, still not at that 30 number, which he would easily be at a double-double. And then the best season of his career last season. Played in 76 games, only missed six, started in every single one. I thought the main reason why the Clippers' defensive rating was one of the better ones in the league. It was at 8th eighth, eighth out of 30, so top 10 in the league in defense, even without Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, was a lot. A big reason was because of Zubats. He really does a much better job of deterring shots at the rim than people give him credit for. He's a presence. He's agile. He's a solid shot blocker. He averaged one block a game last year and 10 points and eight and a half rebounds. So both of those, both of those were career highs. He shot 63% from the field. And one thing I love about him, 73% from the line. He's reliable at the line and he's available. That's one thing I love about Zubats. He's available. Now, here's some of his strengths I think he can build off of. So, as I said, I like his rim protection. I think he's good. I think he can continue to get better at that. But one thing I like about Zoo, besides his free throw shooting and everything, is he's got a really solid touch around the basket. Now, his hands lead in a little bit of work. Sometimes it looks like he has great hands and catches the ball very well. Sometimes he has Kwame Brown hands where he gets slippery butterfingers. But one thing I love about Zoo, his right-handed jump hook. The jump hook is a lost art in today's NBA. Post-game is a lost art. But Ivica Zubats has that move in his bag. Over his left shoulder, right-handed jump hook. I think even though he can't really... I don't think he's a reliable like go-to post threat. Because he can't spin... I've noticed one of his weaknesses, he can't spin over his right shoulder. He has nothing there. I don't know why. He doesn't have a left-handed jump hook or a turnaround or anything like that. But over that left shoulder, he has a right-handed jump hook. So I think at times, especially... If Zubats has a mismatch, mismatch, throw it to him and get an easy bucket because two two reasons. One, it's or actually a couple reasons. One, I'm always a big fan of the big man against the small guy if you have a skilled big man that can post up. And Zubats can post up smaller guys. Secondly, 
it gets him engaged. It gets him going. When you get ro- people think like, oh, would you rather have that or Kawhi isoing against the big man? Sometimes I would rather have Zubats against a small because I think Kawhi is going to be able to get his later in the game. But being able to get your role players engaged and get them some buckets can get them playing that much better on the other end of the court. It's just human psychology. Like if you've played basketball, and you're not getting the ball, sometimes your effort on defense won't be as high. But when you are getting the ball, you feel like a part of the team. That makes you want to go even harder for your guys. And if it's a Zubats, getting more post touches, more touches as a as a guy we can look to throw at the ball to, to create sometimes, I think is something we've been needed to look to more. And I think they should look for it more this season, especially because I think he's only going to improve. And then... Another reason, it's an easy basket. It's a chance to get fouled or double teamed when you throw it down there. Zubats is a big body. But here are some of his weaknesses. At times, Zubats can get targeted in pick and roll. Because any... This is what people need to understand about the actual X's and O's of this. Almost every single center in the NBA gets put in pick and roll. And targeted in that sense by great elite players. And as I said in the previous episode... And the reason why the Clippers will go small ball a lot without Zubats is because switching everything counters a guaranteed open shot in pick and roll. And I, I say guaranteed, it's like 75% guaranteed. If you don't switch the pick and roll in the modern NBA, the way the court is spaced out with, instead of having two big men out there traditionally, which some teams still do, you put out like the Clippers, for example, Marcus Morris Sr. When he first came to the league, he was like a small forward but he can play a hybrid power forward even though he gets no rebounds. So like back in the 90s or the 2000s, that would be like Marcus Morris Sr. could never play power forward not getting rebounds. Like that could never happen. But in today's game, he's just basically like a small forward playing at the four, which the Clippers did with Danilo Gallinari too, and every team does it to their, to their degree. So it's about the spacing. So with the floor so spaced out, that makes it so the second a screen is set, if you don't throw two on the ball handler, you've got ball handler coming sometimes they like to go drop coverage and I think Zubats is really good in drop coverage where he's in between the ball handler and the roller but when it's a lob threat he struggles a lot because he's not the most athletic guy in the world and making up that ground of showing on the ball handler and then jumping in the air to recover can be very tough so guys like Donovan Mitchell Rudy Gobert have exploited him in the past DeAndre Ayton Chris Paul lob threats guys look for that Jared Allen's of the world that's where Zeus struggles. With guys that are more grounded, he can make up the ground and recover very well. But that is, so that is one of his weaknesses. But again, I just don't think, if you expect Zubats, and he actually does a decent job of it, much more decent than you think, of guarding on the perimeter and switching on a guard, you're not going to see that. It's just, you don't want your seven footer doing that unless it's like a bam out of bio or an extreme exception. I think that Zubats. Is, is good at what he does, but there's going to be lineups that don't favor him sometimes because we want to switch. The Clippers are going to want to switch everything, and Zubat's out there makes the Clippers, whether they're in drop coverage or he's hedging or blitzing. Hedging and blitzing sends two people at the ball handler for a split second, and if they make a pass, that's a four-on-three situation, which will guarantee an open shot if they play their cards right. Drop coverage is a better alternative. It doesn't fully give away the open shot, but it gives the ball handler something in that pick and roll, and that can be problematic. 
That being said, people are very harsh on Zubats, and I don't even think it's going to be a big deal. When, he, when I say he's going to be a starting center in a championship team, that doesn't mean he's going to end all the games. Ending games, a lot of times we're going to, the Clippers are going to go small, and it's going to be all about how that game is going, and I trust Ty Lue to make that decision. Speaking of decisions, starting point guard, Reggie Jackson or John Wall, the conversation is heating up, and John Wall just gave some more ammo as to why he should be the number one choice. And I'm going to talk about what I saw in those highlight videos coming up. All right. To finish out, I'm going to be talking about John Wall a little bit. Now, I already talked about his role, what the Clippers want from him, as I said many times, to get to the basket, put pressure on the defense, create good shots for everyone else. But recently, I saw the videos of Paul George, Jason Preston, Musa Diabate, and Moses Brown uh, playing with Paul George and John Wall at UCLA against the, a lot of the Raptors players. Pascal Siakam, Gary Trent Jr., Chris Boucher, Christian Coloco, um, who just got drafted from Arizona, Delano Banton, Malachi Flynn. So a lot of Raptors. And, oh, man. I mean, Paul George looked pretty good, but John Wall in the film was the standout. Now, I don't want to overreact Clipper Nation because it's just open runs and open runs. NBA players can look incredible in open runs. And John Wall looked really good. He was blowing by guys that looked like he still had that first step. He still looked like he had that good elevation. Still loves to finish with his left hand, even though he's a right-handed player. He's that, that, he's very unique in that sense. He loves dunking and finishing with the left hand. It's like Paul Westpaul. If you're a historian of basketball, Paul Westpaul is a famous right-handed player who loved dunking with his offhand. And John Wall has that in him as well. He, he looked like he had such great burst, elevation, made some really nice passes, but more than anything, his three-point shot. He had a couple catch-and-shoot threes that were just splash, nothing but net, and there was even one where somebody went under a screen, and John Wall, to keep it PG-rated, no pun intended, was like, you can't do that stuff anymore. Can't go underneath the screen. Now, we'll see. If he is hitting that shot with consistency, forget about what I said about Norman Powell being the third best player on the Clippers this year because that it's going to be John Wall. If people have to go over the top of the screens all the time, and it's finished because then John Wall's going to get into the paint and at will and he's going to find guys like there's no tomorrow. Guys like Zubats who are going to get easy dunks. And by the way, one thing I love about Zoo is I love when he when he dunks and Tyloo's been pushing him to like, don't go up soft, dunk. He dunks with authority. It's like, it's weird. Sometimes with Zubats, the reason why he can be a scapegoat to conclude on that is that sometimes he looks fantastic like a 20 and 10 guy. Not like he's averaging that, but he can put up 20 and 10 on a given night with like three blocks. And then there's other nights where he'll have like seven points, three rebounds, and you just would rather have the backup center in. And that's where Zubats puts doubt in Clipper fans' minds. So, again, to finish off on Zoo, have the faith, Clipper Nation. This guy's a really good player, and a lot of Clipper fans are skeptical of him, think he's going to get exploited, think that the Clippers can't win a championship with him as the starting center with as big a role as he has. I disagree. And one thing I like about Zoo, he has a high IQ. Very high basketball IQ. Does not do stupid things. Makes good four-on-three reads. I enjoy watching him a lot more than DeAndre Jordan. Like, not from an excitement perspective, but from a reliability perspective. He actually has offensive skill. He can actually make free throws. So, I really like Zoo. But Zubats is great. And I think the players really like him. And one thing I love and can't wait to see again is Kawhi and Zubats uh, pairing up with that pick and roll again. But yes, guys, to finish off, John Wall looked really good in these runs. And the main thing I loved about him is how hungry he looked. He was talking a lot of trash and was just 
this fire in his eye. And I, that's why I became a John Wall fan in the first place in Washington. He was such a fiery player that seemed like he took no game for granted. Like he was playing for the fans every night. And that's the type of player that, that the Clipper fans love and I love as a fan. And John Wall looks so determined to show how great he still is. And he kept yelling, I'm back, I'm back. Oh boy, I'm excited for this. I think he could st- st- steal that starting spot really quickly if he comes out, out the gates firing. I would, I would really be interested to see how preseason goes. I think preseason actually may be, even though it's just preseason, if he really performs better than Reggie, I think Tyler throw him in there. And John and clearly him and Paul George really like each other. I just, again, don't want John to be so in this quest to prove himself that it takes away from guys like Kawhi, Norman, and other guys. That's one thing I'm afraid of. But... It's always better to be optimistic, and I think John Wall is going to be so ready and make a great impact for this Clipper team. He looks great in the open runs. We'll see how he looks on the NBA court. As for Musa Diabate and Moses Brown, you might be wondering, Jason Preston even, what did I think of them? How much footage of them was there? By the way, if you want to go check out the video, it's on YouTube, Rico Hines Basketball. Go check it out on YouTube. It's like 20 minutes long. Great stuff. I would really recommend it if you are interested in seeing how John Wall, Paul George look. And as for the other young kids... I think I'll save that for the next episode to finish off on the Clippers' upcoming roster. So if you enjoyed the episode, let me know. Make sure to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Remember, I will be coming with guests soon. It's not just going to be me the whole time, all the episodes, the whole season. I know you're probably sick of hearing my voice. But if you're not, you can follow me at Twitter on Dime Dro- I'm sorry, on Twitter at Dime Dropper Pod. That's also my handle on Instagram, at DimeDripperPod. And, of course, YouTube. Subscribe. I'm going to be going live tonight to talk about the Donovan Mitchell trade to Cleveland. Wow. Who would have expected that? But, hey, as Clipper fans, how satisfying is it that the Utah Jazz are going to be terrible for the next couple years? It it puts such a smile on my face. I almost feel like the Clippers were responsible for the whole downfall of them. Because that number one seed that they had in 2021 was their best chance to win a championship since Malone and Stockton, and they totally blew it without Kawhi Leonard because Terrence Mann just owns them. <laughs> so, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again for making Locked On Clippers your first listen every day, but for your second listen, go check out the Ultimate Pro Football Preview 2022. NFL season is on the horizon. The LA Rams, my LA Rams, are having a banner put up at SoFi Stadium. I cannot wait. An eight-episode extravaganza to get you ready for the NFL season. The local team experts of the Locked On Podcast Network, plus a betting angle from Lee Sterling of Locked On Bets, all combining into one Ultimate NFL Preview. Search for Ultimate Pro Football Preview 2022 on your Odyssey app, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to comment on the YouTube channel here on Locked On Clippers after you subscribe, of course. Do Can Ivica Zubats be the starting center on a championship team? That's going to be today's question. Good day, everyone. Be easy and go Clippers.